I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk turned traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Thank you so much for busting out the the, the super sexy mic. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Hey, everyone. Thank you for coming to Reppin. I'm Evelyn, your host. Reppin is a podcast about representation of all kinds, from race, gender, orientation, to truths, values, perspectives, and more. My next guest is a neuroscientist and popular science communicator. She earned her PhD from the University of Toronto, researching how stem cells build the mammalian brain before birth and maintain it throughout adulthood. I mean, don't we all? She's a regular guest expert on TVO Kids, Leaf Nation Network, Netflix, and CBC Gem. She's about empowering people to explore science by making it more familiar, accessible, and inclusive. And she does this in part by sharing interactive science commentary and research updates on Instagram, and she's got some great content on YouTube. But what does representation have to do with science? Well, quite a lot, actually. She's going to break that down for us and how it affects you directly. So please welcome Dr. Samantha Yamin, also known as Science Sam. Sam, it is great to see you. Thank you so much for being here. How are things in Canada? Oh, things in Canada have been a roller coaster. I am very glad to escape to this podcast space with you. We are getting out of the dark times, but it has definitely been a rough start to 2021 over here. I'm hoping that the worst is behind us. I'm optimistic, but... Man, am I tired. (laughs) I can only imagine because science has really, uh, you know, been under attack, but we'll kind of get into it. 
So before we get started, you are a neuroscientist, molecular biologist, and science communicator. Now that alone should tell you that I can't (gasps) pronounce what you do. So I'm going to allow you (laughs) to give listeners a sense of what you do in your background. The fact that my job is so hard to pronounce and is such a mouthful for me too is exactly what my job is. <laughs> I'm trained as a as a neuroscientist and molecular biologist. What that means is I uh, got to study all the cells of the brain for my PhD. And now I'm a full-time freelance science communicator trying to make the science behind the headlines more accessible, but also more engaging, invite more people in. And so that looks like me posting on social media about science, uh, engaging, giving talks and talking with different communities and also consulting with other organizations, how they can better share science. I love the fact that you are taking science, which I wholeheartedly admit, the minute I hear science, I look at that like a math problem. I'm like, what? Checked out. It seems like such a, a, a substantially dense subject that I cannot get my brain around. But you're using social media to engage younger people, especially women, to take science on. But before we get to that, describe a little bit about your heritage, your upbringing, and when you fell in love with science. I was born and raised in a suburb near Toronto in Canada. My parents are both of Lebanese ancestry and immigrated here in the 70s. Uh, And I actually grew up in the same childhood house. And around that house, I would always be outside picking at things on the ground. I would be uh, putting, you know, there was one experiment we did where we put eggs outside just to see what would happen. Uh, Spoiler, that's exactly what happened. It stunk (laughs) and they spoiled. I thought I invented plastic ones because I mixed all the, I was always mixing things around the house. So you could say, Like many children, I was curious about the world and I was very excited to test out that curiosity. And maybe that was when it started. But for me, the pinnacle moment was just being in high school, looking at people and all behaving differently. And why is this person acting one way? And these other people are being mean and these people are being goofy. And I became so curious of like, what makes us us? What makes me me? What makes you you? And I realized it's governed entirely by this squishy spaghetti looking thing beneath your skull called the brain. And since then, I was just fascinated with like, I must know everything about the brain. And I got to a class in my undergraduate education where I got to hold a real human brain. Imagine that my, my TA just passed me this thing. I was like, Hey, can you hold this for a sec? And I was like, are you kidding me? I'm holding someone's entire being entire existence in my hand. It it was a preserved brain for research purposes. Good to know. (laughs) And that's when I got hooked of like, this is trippy. This is everything about us has a material basis and we can study and learn about it. And my question was, how does this even form? How does this come to be? And that's really where I was hooked and where I'll never go back because of that moment. That's an incredible story. You know, first of all, and this is not a joke by any definition, I actually had spaghetti and meatballs for lunch. I will <laughs> Sorry not about it. <laughs> be revisiting the leftovers. <laughs> but, you know, just to uh, respectfully challenge you, you know, when we go through life, when you were saying about like, why do people act a certain way? You can go down the rabbit hole of being a psychologist, but you approached it differently. You were seeing that more as a science perspective. So when did you realize like, hey, maybe like being a psychologist isn't for me, but science was it. And granted, the brain 
uh, story or experience of just holding someone's entire physical being in your hand might have uh, cemented that realization. But the inclination of like pursuing it, when did that hit you? Yeah, I think I think in in my later years of high school, I was really enamored with this idea of like mind over matter, which you hear about a lot. And right. I thought like, shouldn't it be mind and matter? Isn't the mind matter? I don't know. I was in grade, Ooh, grade 12 tripping out days. <laughs> For me, I was like, if the brain controls everything in the body, shouldn't I be able to like will myself to not be sick? Shouldn't I be able to like think how to heal myself? That really fascinated me. You know, you can't do that. It turns out the brain controls uh, many things in the body, but it doesn't necessarily control what every cell in the body does. It can't make your immune cells go do specific tasks. But that was a question I had to learn and that you you have to learn through asking really specific questions. And so just that activity of having a random thought and then having the courage really to try to find the answer and to make a hypothesis, see if it's true, see if someone's found it. And so I think the questions I was drawn to they were psychological in nature, like what drives behavior. But then I wanted the nitty gritty. And the nitty gritty is like, oh, it's these thousands of cells firing together electrochemically that make you think whatever you just thought. I want to know more about that. Like I'm I'm all in the details. That's impressive. You would be the kid that I'd want to sit next to in class. <laughs> Going back for just a second, I, I also think it was really interesting. Your parents were immigrants. And I'm going to make a huge leap here because I don't know that much about your heritage in terms of the core beliefs. But for me, being Chinese American, I know that my parents would have loved to have had you as a daughter. For your passion and interest in academia like science, what did your family think about you pursuing science? My family is incredibly supportive. They're my rock, my everything. They're my number one fans. Uh, my mom is literally the number one fan on my Facebook page. <laughs> like, <laughs> I think she gets a badge for it or something. It's pretty embarrassing. That's awesome. That's um, awesome. Yeah, my my family, entire family, is incredibly supportive. I'm, I'm super lucky. Uh, they throw me a threw me a wicked PhD party when I graduated. It was a good time. But I would say, unlike many. Uh, if the stereotype of many immigrant parents that that you described, which is yeah. in many ways very true. My parents weren't about that. They were like, you work too hard. Come watch TV. I'd be studying late and they'd be like, come watch TV. You're too stressed out. Just come hang out. And I'd be like, if I listened to you, I would fail out <laughs> of school. The first time I, I did badly on a test in university, my mom like hysterically laughed. They thought it was so funny because they're like, you've never done badly before. And I'm like, I'm literally in tears. And they're like, you oh, take things too seriously. Just chill out. It's not that deep. <laughs> it's great that they were so supportive of you. Now, back when you started and you realized, you know, science is your calling. Were there many women role models or inspirations that you could look up to that said, yeah, this is something I could pursue. There could be a place for me in science. And I only ask this because I'm sort of referencing my own mm -hmm. path into entertainment. My parents were immigrants. When I said that I wanted to be in entertainment, they were gravely concerned because A, mm -hmm. they didn't know anybody. Mm -hmm. How would an immigrant's daughter get to Hollywood and break into the entertainment industry? For you, what told you you could do what you do? And, and who did you look up to, if anybody? I was definitely a magic school bus kid. 
Um, so thank you to Lily Tomlin for bringing Miss Frizzle into my life. Definitely. It really was my parents. Mm-hmm. I didn't know of any famous scientists. I didn't really have that upbringing in, in school. We didn't really talk about the individual scientists too much. So I can't think of any actual scientists that I knew back then. I can think of many now who inspire me. But I think it was really, you know, my parents giving me the space to explore and my parents always encouraging me. They never limited what I could do. They never had any doubts and they would always tell me, go kick ass. That was really what I had a test and I'd say, I'm nervous. And my dad'd be like, go kick ass. So I was super empowered, I guess. It became important to find that community and role model as I progressed. But from the early days, I didn't feel like I didn't belong. It was only as I progressed up that I started being pushed out for many reasons that I then needed to rely on many others. It's interesting that you tied your ability to reach for the stars. Mm -hmm. You attributed it to your parents giving you the space and the confidence that there was a place for you. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like that quality is an immigrant quality? Because they basically are like picking up from what they know and going, well, I don't know what the hell, where I'm going, mm-hmm. but we're going to, we're going that way yeah. with a real uh, determination and commitment towards it. Do you feel like that is an immigrant value? A, B, it was an immigrant value that was passed to you. Yeah. I mean, I, I can't speak for everyone, but I can definitely say because of my parents' immigration experience, it was, it was very much a story of perseverance, figuring it out, um, supporting one another. So yeah, in that regard, I mean, I just think of like all that my parents did, just it's, it's wild that they just, without the internet, had to, to build right. up roots in a new place without being able to Google it. Like, I'm always like, mom, how the hell did you do this? And I think for them, they were kind of just like, there is no limit for you. We've started you off. You didn't have to deal with all the crap we did. So there, there, was, there is kind of like no excuse to fail because the hard part they've dealt with for us. So in that regard, I think that was part of the empowerment that they gave. We got you. At the end of the day, whatever happens, come home, we're here. That's and I think that was something they didn't always have the luxury of. They didn't always have the privilege of that same support because they had to move away from it. So right. now the older I get, I think this is common. The older you get, the more you're like, damn, my parents are our next level. Yeah. Anything I achieve pales in comparison to what they've done. Right. And given the context of what they've done, I'm forever humbled by by them and everyone with a similar story. I mean, that's an incredible statement. And I agree with you. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% back at hundreds of stores. And it's all happening this week, May 6th to May 13th. It's the perfect time to shop for everything on your list for spring and summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. I know I'm using this week to stock up on some warmer weather essentials at Ray-Ban and Ulta, and I love that Rakuten even helps me save on travel at sites like Hotels.com. Rakuten really is the best way to shop, and you can save even more by stacking cash back on top of deals. Plus, during Big Give Week, that cash back is bigger than ever. With Rakuten, membership is free. And when you sign up and shop today, you get an extra 10% cashback boost. That's an extra 10% cashback on top of the 15% cashback. You won't see higher cashback rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. 
Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Now, going to what you said, as you progressed, because you didn't know any bounds when you first started, you never questioned if there was a place for you. As you started in science and you were breaking in, and you said there weren't many women role models to really lead the way at that point. Mm -hmm. You said that you had faced some adversity as you started to progress in your career. Can you give me an example of one challenging experience? Most importantly, tell me the turning point and what was the lesson that you learned and still hold on to? For me, there's not one big thing. And I'm not copping out here. No, I know. (laughs) Um, I know. Like many people who are in an environment that it hasn't really been made to be inclusive for them. They, you know, they say death by a thousand cuts. And sometimes the cuts are deep and real. But in my case, it was very, I had in some ways had the privilege that it was many little things that compounded. It was many people, you know, assuming that I'm not smart or don't know what I'm talking about or don't deserve to be there because I'm a very girly girl, whatever that means. Like I wear lipstick and heels and that's what people assume and makeup. And that makes people think I'm not smart. Um, right. It was a lot of, these really subtle ways that people try to signal that I didn't belong. And I, it didn't always occur to me, but sometimes it was overt where people would say, oh, you you won't be able to do that. Or are you sure you know what you're doing? Or they turn to my like white man colleague and ask him a question that I'm like, you know that that's my thing, right? right. Like, he doesn't know that answer. That's what I do. He would be like, uh, that's Sam's thing, you know? <laughs> And even right. just going to conferences internationally, scientific conferences, people would come up to me when I was, you present these posters and people walk around and talk to you and they would come up to me and like very clearly just be hitting on me and not really caring about my work. And you'd talk to them and I'd be like, do you know anything about what I'm doing? Like, why are you here? <laughs> this is, you're just here to like have, be weird. Um, and it's those very little things that make you make start to question. impact. Yeah. How did it hit you? And how did you not let it sort of shake your confidence? Because when you're in it for a long period of time and you're getting a lot of it constantly from all these different outlets, sometimes it's easy to, you know, to lose a little bit of that security. A big turning point for me was connecting with other women, femmes, and non-binary people in STEM. Uh, we started connecting virtually online through Instagram, through Facebook groups, And um, one of the organizers of some of these community groups, Christine Liu, she's amazing, um, PhD student out of Berkeley. And she wrote this piece that, and she wasn't the first to say this, but she wrote it. And that was the first time I came across this point. She wrote about how like imposter syndrome is not about you. It's about a toxic 
environment, a systemic problem. Right. And I think that really shifted. I, and then the more people I met with a similar experience, you start to realize like, oh, the common denominator is not me. It's this system that we're in. Right. And that just actually really galvanized me to realize like, oh, it's actually so much more important that I bring my whole self to what I do. And I open the door for others to be represented more in STEM because we've been pushed out because we've been made to feel we don't exist because I don't know any other Arab or Lebanese scientist. It's important that I am here to represent for our people. I'm so lucky to be here. That's where you really start to, to find the value in yourself, even if you're not being valued. And, and for me, it was that community that helped me get there. That's a lot to process though, when you're not quite there yet. A lot of times when you, people talk about representation, you think race, gender, sexual orientation. Can you talk about how representation is as relevant, if not more relevant, in science? Oh, because you and I were talking about what is science missing? I mean, you and I jumped on a call really quickly before we got on this session here. And you talked a lot about what science is missing and how representation does matter in science. Mm -hmm. Can you sort of connect those dots? How is representation important in science? The lie you'll be told is that science is objective and it should be apolitical. And that's just not true at all. Science cannot be separated from society. And everything's political and politics affects the way that we do science. Let me stop being vague and be specific now. Hit me, girl. You can't have a clinical trial if, I mean, a lot of clinical trials are being, for new medications, are be, were historically tested only on um, white cis men of a certain age. That's not the whole population. No. So that's a bit of an that's a bit of an issue. And and so now they've started moving towards okay, we have to include women in research, but that's still a binary view, and that's still predominantly white population. How are we going to include like actually everyone in the world, or actually everyone who could potentially need this medicine? Unfortunately, it sometimes takes that representation on the side of the scientists. Like science itself is objective, but the way that we do it what we think about, which questions we even ask are very much a product of who we are as scientists. Sometimes there are great advocates and allies, but other times it takes lived experience to realize like, hey, this actually isn't being represented or this word that we're using is going to turn off this cultural community because it means something different to them. Or there's a history here we need to think about. And so in that way, the way that we do science and the way that we empower people to ask specific questions, to then study scientifically, representation is, is super important there. And we see the impact of the lack of representation that we've had in that there's distrust in institutions, there's a, a nasty history of science where things have been done really poorly and racist and sexist. And we also see like there are effects unaccounted for. Um, Menstruation, for example, is not even typically how a medication affects menstruation is not even typically recorded in a standard clinical trial. That seems like a pretty big deal for a lot of people that should probably be studied. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? I think that's maybe, maybe, that's maybe a little more attention would be great. Give me another example. So you're a Lebanese young woman. So when you talk about representation in science, give me an example of what you would represent and bring to science. Usually you'll have to test a new medication on 
a certain number of people first in a clinical trial. And you might have some subpopulations there. You could stratify by age. You could say, we should have this many people in this age group and this age group. But another thing would be like, well, what about um, people who maybe menopausal or postmenopausal who may be taking hormones, maybe um, trans people who are on hormone therapies, their body might react differently just because they have some different things going right. on. And so it's really important that we have representation for all those people. That way they can have confidence too, that the trial included them and they can know that this would be safe or they know what to expect. Maybe someone is immunocompromised or on some long, they're chronically ill and on some long-term treatment. Right it's important for them to be represented or to at least have been thought of so they know what to expect when they go to take this medication. And I think that a lot of able-bodied people in science may not think about that perspective. They may think, oh yeah, in aggregate, everyone's fine, but people have the right to know, well, what about me? I mean, seriously, you really want to take a medicine that you know is going to work for you. Yeah. I know you're out in the forefront with social media, using your experience, your knowledge to educate and encourage people to learn science and also encourage young people, especially women, to kind of come into the industry. Can you talk a little bit more about your work personally, what you're doing exactly and why it's important and also the way you're doing it? The most basic part behind what I do is that I think science needs to be by everyone and for everyone, period. That can't happen if not everyone is able to participate in scientific conversations. You never really know where a new idea, a new discovery could come from. We want everyone to be involved in that process. Unfortunately, even in the media, science is kind of told in a certain way. It's explosions. It's uh, a quirky, nerdy guy, <laughs> It's which is all fun. But like, and when you asked me who my role models were is when I was a kid, I didn't re- that didn't really resonate with me. I wasn't interested in explosives, to be frank. That was just wasn't for me. Um, but that's the way science is always told. It's told to like a very specific audience with a niche set of interests. And science isn't always talked about in a way that I, how I would talk with my friends. Right. So the whole purpose of what I do online is making science accessible for people who don't have science being talked to in their language exactly, in a way that makes cultural sense to them. So I talk exactly how I talk. You can say I have vocal fry or up talk or whatever. You could say I touch my hair too much. These are all things I've been told, by the way. <laughs> um, it doesn't matter. It's That's how I talk about it because that's how me and my friends talk. And we like that. And we have a right to engage with science in a way that feels comfortable. What is the importance of like having more people like you, young women who need to be engaged, who are brilliant, who are deserving, who are working to kind of (laughs) open the doors for other people like you. Can you talk more about the importance of your work and making it accessible to young women and why you're harnessing the power of the social media platform? I just want everyone to be empowered with what is true and and what we know scientifically so they can make better decisions for themselves. Really, that's in the most practical sense what it comes down to. There's a lot of medical gaslighting that can happen for people who are Black, for people, for women, for people for whom English isn't their first language. You go to the doctor, you complain about something and you're dismissed. 
And my job is to arm you with the facts and with the research and the confidence to be able to, to say, actually, no, this is valid. Uh, and, and I heard this and I heard that from Sam. And so here we go. Right. And I, and I want us to also be confident to, to talk to our communities. I don't want to just reach the one person on the other end of the phone, but also all of their friends too. I, just to inspire more people to feel comfortable talking about science instead and separating from a lot of the issues. That also lets us ask better questions scientifically. I have a great friend, Sean Hercules, who studies uh, triple negative breast cancer, which is one of the most aggressive breast cancers that tends to happen more commonly in women of African ancestry. And, and like, would a white man have asked any of those research questions? He's investigating why. Right. <laughs> My friend Sean's lab investigates why this is and, and how you can treat it. And I just don't know that anyone else would have taken up the courage to ask that question, which is so important. Yeah, that's so important. So how much work needs to be done in science with representation? The cool thing is everyone starts out curious. You, you look at a kid and they ask you a million questions and they poke around and explore. Kids are natural born scientists. Yeah. Uh, and it's more just over time, people kind of start to say, oh, I'm not a science person. I'm not a math person. And that's very much, you know, many, many things at work. But we actually see a lot of young women being interested in science and at the young younger stages of the scientific training and the, at the PhD level, for example, master's, undergrad, there's tons of, of diversity with respect to gender, race, ethnicity, disability. But as you progress further and further, many people tend to be pushed out. People talk about a leaky pipeline. It's not leaky, it's broken. We're very much pushed out. We're not made to be included. Um, and so that's where we're at is that like many other industries, the higher ups, the people with decision-making authority tend to not have that representation, but on all other levels, it's there. And so now we're just working on like, how do we fix that problem? Now, what is it do you think that is it about science that sort of presents, at least maybe it's just me, and I'm not saying this uh, with one iota of sarcasm. Maybe it is just me. I see science as this sort of very daunting, like big, like a big puzzle that I just can't figure out. Why is it so not, not as many women or young girls are pursuing it as, as maybe they should? For the most part, STEM is a program that has to actively be engaged to encourage more women to come into the field of science. Why is that? And what can we all do to contribute to break that wall down? It's been a difficult question because, like I said, I think everyone is born being very curious. And it, there are tons of surveys where you ask kids, you know, do you like science or do you like doing this and that? And you kind of test for their interest in STEM fields. Mm -hmm. And there are no gender disparities at those young ages. And it kind of happens over time, which is why many of us say it's it's not really to do with our interest. It has to do with everything else. Society. Yeah, exactly. Right now with the pandemic, if you look at which academics have been hardest hit in terms of their productivity, it's largely women. And the study was just look, looking at a binary view between women and men largely women because they've had to take on other duties around the house, for example. So, I mean, the problem's not just with science, it's with our whole society, but of course, science is not separate from it, so it manifests. Right. But I think having like actual supports in place, including childcare at conferences, yes. just one simple thing, because that tends to be put on women, even though it shouldn't be, those little things just need to happen in every industry and science isn't separate from that. 
No, I'm actually really glad that you made all of these sort of connections. I think it's really helpful that people see that. Talk about the content that you're putting out on social media, on Instagram, YouTube, what your goal is, the style, the tone of the work and what you want to convey to your followers. I am a very medically anxious person. I (laughs) get so much anxiety, even just going to the doctor. I really, I'm not even joking. The last time I was in a hospital, I just fainted because it was too stressful. Like no joke. It's, it's, it's You're in a lab a lot, right? I know. It's very weird, (laughs) but. So you, you actually fainted? Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. My God. Yeah. It's like a very stressful, it's called white coat syndrome. A lot of people feel it. It's funny because I also wear a white coat. So anyways, <laughs> <laughs> brains are weird. See, this is why I study brains. Okay. They're fascinating. <laughs> but so for me, I kind of have been joking lately that especially in the last year, my brand has been science by anxious people for anxious people. <laughs> <laughs> so everyone's just been so stressed out over the last year, rightfully so. Yeah. It's been a pandemic. So I've been trying to put out content that lets people be informed without having to have a constant panic attack. And by that, I mean content that makes me not have a constant panic attack (laughs) (laughs) while making. It's really selfish. (laughs) Your content is really fun and it's informative. So I don't feel like I'm in like a class. Yeah, exactly. So Sam, what is your goal? Like, what is your mission statement? My goal as a science communicator, especially as one on social media, is definitely to break down barriers to science and promote accessibility of science for everyone. And especially for communities who haven't typically had science made with them in mind. So I try to be really gender inclusive, making sure that if I'm sharing a study and they've only looked at gender in the binary, I'm mentioning that. I'm looking for other sources that did a better job of that. I try to be mindful of scientific research that's ableist or that excludes people based on disability and try to, to, to explain science in a way that really sees people for who they are. I, I'm not saying I'm perfect at it. That's, that's a big goal. No, no, no. But right. definitely trying to make people feel more seen and heard with the way that they can learn about science and making it fun. Like it doesn't, it's social media. It's serious. Social media can be serious, but like we're also just scrolling when we're bored in a meeting. So (laughs) I can give you something colorful, spend as much time researching the content as I do designing the graphic because and choosing the font because that's just who I am. Those thumbnails are what makes people click. Exactly. (laughs) Can you tell me one conversation or example that maybe somebody said something to you or sent you an email that made you realize that what you're doing is making a difference? This past year has been, I mean, so hard for everyone and a difficult time to be a science communicator. We've actually, scientists and healthcare workers, we're facing a lot of harassment online. But the thing that makes it worth it and makes me continue wanting to be vocal, I've had countless messages, even just this past week, of people who messaged me to say, I was really scared about the vaccine. And today I got it and I cried of joy. And it's because of you and uh, Jessica Milati Rivera and Laurel Bristow, other science communicators like me on Instagram that I felt confident and so excited and honored to roll up my sleeve. I, I, I can't even, I try to screenshot and keep a catalog of how many, but it's it's just been so beautiful to see that people are scared And I can be someone that they can go to who they trust. And that's just so beautiful because I don't think most people don't know a scientist who they can ask. And I'm I'm so grateful I get to be that person for so many people. Since the pandemic started, which has been 
just, you know, unprecedented and insane. Um, science has been under attack in many, many different ways and in from many different sources. What would you say to those guys that are still like, we don't believe it. It's a conspiracy theory, not necessarily specific to the pandemic. I just mean science in general. What would you say to the people that are so, so suspect of science and don't buy into it? I think for a lot of people, it has to do more with the institution and the government and this profound mistrust in these large forces and authorities. And if that's you, I get that. I think there's there's a lot to be critical of in this world, especially with those who hold power. But what I want people to know is there's a difference between government, between large institutions, and people who are scientists, people who are in this because we really care. Find the helpers. I think it's valid to have a lot of distrust and mistrust, but that doesn't mean that you throw away the whole thing. There are there are many scientists. Look at Dr. Kismekia Corbett. She's awesome. She was um, one of the most pivotal people for the mRNA vaccine, Moderna. Look for people like her. She's doing what she does because she gives a shit. <laughs> and I think we have to just remember, like, we're here. We're with you. We're, we're here to protest and fight the powers that be. But we're also trying to help you. And we'll let you know what the difference is when this is something you can't trust, when this is a scam, and when this is something real. Like, we're critical too. So please don't paint us with a broad brush. I love it. You rightly so place science in as a piece of an institution. And the problem does lie more in the institution. The unfortunate part is it does ripple down and permeate science. Mm -hmm. In terms of representation in science, what can we do to increase more representation so the vaccines and science can be more accurate and more right for people like me, who is a person of color. There are a lot of things. I think one really cool way that we've seen a lot of people step up this past year is to participate in clinical trials, contact their local universities and see what kind of studies are going on. See if you want to participate. Also, okay, if you don't want to do that, no okay. pressure. <laughs> but I mean, it's really cool to think of how many people were were willing to, to actually be that representation and, and participate. Uh, that's, I think... They're the unsung heroes of the, yeah. of the past year and a half. This reason why we have the vaccines now, right? Yeah. Because they were willing to step up and try it. Yeah. And and let me just say, a lot of that those people were scientists, healthcare workers, because they have so much trust in what was being done that they're like, take my body, go. Right. <laughs> There's no hypocrisy. We, we were ready. Give it to us. <laughs> Fair. <laughs> well, we're all very grateful to all of the healthcare workers, the scientists, and the people that stepped up to you know, try the vaccine. But Sam, sign us off. Let me know who you are and what you represent. Who am I? Just a casual question. Yeah, you know. I am Samantha Yumin, and I represent the connections, the highway, and importantly, an open door to science. Thank you to Samantha Yamin for hanging out with us here, also for the work she's doing to encourage diversity and inclusion in the field of science. Check Sam out. She's got a ton of great videos on YouTube and Instagram. I'll have those links available for you in the episode description. Coming up next, Patrick Sabongi from Shameless, The Flash, and Homeland is coming to hang out. I was so grateful for the job, and I really, really enjoyed the job, but I didn't realize how much it hurt for them to change my identity. Hey, what's good, y'all? Patrick Sabongi here. I'm coming to reppin'. Better not miss it. 
You're going to love him and be surprised at some of his experiences. And guys, every episode of Reppin is available for download. Don't forget to subscribe, leave a review, and share. I'm on Twitter at Reppin Podcast, so hit me up. I'd love to hear from you. Ask me questions, let me know your thoughts, and let me know what you represent. Head on over to the Instagram page at Reppin underscore podcast and check out some bonus content where you're going to get to know our guests in seconds. Thank you so much to my technical director and musical composer, Mr. Nelson Pinero, for riding shotgun with me. And always, love and thanks to Gracie Kong. Reppin is a Suburban Outlaw Productions. Until next time, be sure to stand up and represent. Attention, fans of fairy tales that are magical, hilarious, and grim. The award-winning Pinna original podcast, Grim, Grimmer, Grimmest, has new episodes out now. While you've probably heard of the Brothers Grimm, you've never heard these tales told in quite this way. I'm Adam Gidwitz, best-selling and Newbery Honor author of Books for Children, and in Grim, Grimmer, Grimmest, I share the real weird, grim fairy tales with real, weird, hilarious kids. In each episode, you not only get to hear a story, but you also get to enjoy this group guessing what'll happen next, cracking jokes, and sharing their own perspectives on the tales. Also, heckling me. They love to heckle me. The episodes are rated on a scale from grim to grimmer to grimmest, so there's always a great variety of tales to explore with your family. You can listen to Grim, Grimmer, Grimmest now wherever you get your podcasts. And be sure to follow the show so you don't miss new episodes. 